Hi everyone, thanks for tuning in today. Today with me, I have Dr. Jill Caney. Uh, she was a climate scientist and she has had a interesting career path where she did some different things along the way from being a climate scientist to now working in electricity. I probably can't do the same job at introducing her as she could introduce herself. So Jill, if you want to kind of give everyone a little bit of an introduction and tell everyone a little bit about yourself. I'll try. I'm not going to go and describe everything that I've done right now because hopefully that will come out a bit further on in our conversation. But I grew up in the UK. I did a chemistry and physics degree and then I emigrated to Melbourne in the early 90s to do a PhD in uh, atmospheric chemistry, uh, looking at the role of micro and macro algae in creating clouds, so natural climate change. And then after a career in climate, I returned back to the UK to retrain as a primary school teacher and then mysteriously transitioned from there into electricity storage and energy before returning back to Australia in 2016 as a, as a person who's working in energy. Yeah. And I guess outside of energy, I also I play the bassoon and the flute, so I'm musical. I do a whole host of other things, so I'm not just a pointy-headed scientist. I think Julie's being a bit modest there. I think she forgot to also mention she has an MBE, which I think is pretty cool. Maybe we'll get onto that as well. But yeah, you've mentioned before somewhere online that you chose to work in the energy industry because uh, being a climate scientist, you recognise that we use energy and that ultimately affects the climate. How have you found transitioning from climate science to actually working in the energy industry? So I've always felt that energy was the other side of climate change. You can't address climate change can't mitigate climate change unless you're exploring how we make and use energy. It wasn't a planned transition into energy. It's just kind of what happened. But it all seems to, uh, it appears to be like a part of a grand master plan, but that's not really how it panned out. And before I moved into energy, I didn't have any experience of the electricity system. So basically when I started in the UK, working in the electricity system, I had to start again. And I, I knew nothing more than, you know, you press a, a switch and electricity boils your kettle or turns on the lights. And I had no idea of what goes on behind the light switch. So, and, and I guess, you know, I'm curious, I'm a scientist. So I like learning new stuff. And that was, it was a big, a steep learning curve to get on top of energy. That's pretty interesting. I think you briefly mentioned in your, when introducing yourself, you worked on macroalgae and how it kind of contributes to the formation of clouds. I think that's pretty interesting. Have you found that kind of, I guess, working with algae uh, experience kind of useful for energy? Because I guess algae was kind of a very hot topic, especially in yeah. energy. So there are some people who are growing algae as a way of absorbing CO2, and then you can use that as a, a source of plastics and other hydrocarbons. I got, got into atmospheric science looking at something called the Gaia hypothesis, which was published by James Lovelock ooh, in the 70s, which is sort of implies that the Earth is a self-regulating organism and the oceans are the Earth, the forests, the Earth's lungs. And so there was this feedback loop proposed that plankton would get hot and stressed in the ocean and produce more chemicals that would lead to the production of cloud condensation nuclei, which would lead to more clouds, which would reduce climate. 
I don't think that theory has really panned out uh, the way we the way we expected. Um, so I spent a lot of time basically saying that I didn't think that worked. But it, you know, I did get to go to sea for four weeks and play in the Southern Ocean off New Zealand, toss a bit of iron in to see if we could grow some plankton, mucking about with giant kelp off the coast of Tasmania. So you know, it's been a very practical and exciting career, but probably not really linked to energy. Okay. Yeah, I think it, well, it's an interesting field that I guess energy may end up depending on to as a way for decarbonisation. But I guess yeah, for maybe your research purpose, it's probably not exactly how it kind of not exactly in. linked. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But I guess that's kind of a good segue for my next question. So you've kind of got perspective on both sides now, being a climate scientist and now working in in the energy industry. How have yeah. you kind of seen connections being developed between these two sectors? both in the private area and in kind of public areas as well? Yeah, so I mean, I guess climate scientists have always said that it's all about energy in order to mitigate climate change. And if you like electricity networks in the energy space, much more concerned about the impacts of climate change. And I guess for electricity networks and the electricity sector generally, that's that transition from fossil fuel generation to renewable generation and the the technical impact that has on electricity networks, but also, unfortunately, severe weather like severe fire weather and storms knocks over electricity assets. And so uh, electricity networks are very concerned about how we manage the costs of repairs and building in resilience. So that's kind of where the, the link comes between the two. So I think that's probably all I can say there. You know, the sort of the links, I mean, I guess it's every every field, every sector has its own, you know, acronyms. I could probably have a sentence that would have five acronyms all in a row for both climate science and electricity, and they're all different. And the biggest challenge, I guess, when working in this space is about how we communicate the language that we use and helping each other to understand. And so right this very moment, tomorrow I'll be travelling to Sydney and then to Brisbane later in the week to deliver workshops which are being put together by CSIRO, Oceans and Atmospheres, to support electricity networks in understanding the risks to their assets of climate change. And so I feel like I'm an interpreter moving between the two worlds to help each different field understand the other. You highlight some really interesting things there. And I think yeah, you have a unique perspective because you have your experience in climate science. And now because you are actively working in the industry, you can kind of bridge that gap in between and kind of really get those industries to work a bit more cohesively. So I guess yeah. on that point that you mentioned, where there kind of seems to be, I guess, not an actual language barrier, but kind of more like a technical language barrier between, I guess, not only energy and climate science, but a lot of other industries and disciplines as well. How do you think that moving forward, younger scientists can also look at kind of helping to bridge that gap so that everyone can kind of work to work together? So I guess, as an example, the energy, the future of energy is going to probably be very multidisciplinary. It's not going to just be reliant on one field. And I guess from personal experience, listening to other um, scientists present on whatever they're researching about energy, it can actually be quite hard to understand what they're talking about, but it can be very technical and you don't have actually a lot of expertise. So where do you kind of see 
us overcoming those barriers and challenges? How do we, how can we address that in the future so everyone can kind of work together a bit better? Yeah, that's a very good point. The, if, you, if you start looking at resilience, you see that all the sectors, all the utilities are closely interlinked. So, for instance, in the bushfires of 2019, 2020, one of the major impacts was on our mobile phone network because if they don't have electricity, then you don't have mobile phones. And then it's very difficult for people to understand whether they need to evacuate where the fire front is, what the weather is doing and so on. So I think it's, you know, I'm not going to say you need to be a, a jack or jill of all trades because mm. that, you know, you, you don't have a good grounding in one particular subject but for people who are looking at energy have, have a really solid background in energy but then think about the links that have to be made between energy and other sectors so it could be transport or it could be patients uh, or it could be water utilities and think about how you can be diverse in that sense but you do you still do need that strong grounding in energy but it's kind of like you've got to get that in first before you start diversifying. If you like, I was a climate scientist and I was well established in that field before I diversified into energy. I don't think you should try and pick lots of little bits and maybe not be very good at any of those little bits. You need to be very good at energy if that's what, you know, that's your key interest and then look at things outside of that. Some interesting points. So you've kind of focused on one area and do your best at what you can in that one area first before looking to improve other things yeah okay yeah we're not this, you, I would imagine that not many people are just really you know on one thing you will have diverse interests and you will find those links and as you go through your career kind of follow those links areas that interest you yeah but I guess you were interested in climate science and then sort of how you saw that kind of really interconnecting with energy that kind of led you towards energy in the end which was really nice well, yeah. you make it sound like it was a you know planned but what <laughs> what, what essentially happened was um i i was a i'd retrained trained as a primary school teacher and i had long mm. empty summer holidays um mm. and so i i started doing technical writing or technical work for an electricity storage consultancy company in, so that's obviously in the electricity industry mm. and then i kind of i went down that rabbit hole and spend a lot of time working on electricity storage but in order to understand how to apply big batteries pressed air energy storage pumped hydro energy storage and all different technologies you need to understand how the electricity system works and so I had to I had to get that background before I could really service the electricity storage you know as people will know the electricity system is very fragile it's not this super robust throw anything at it and it's all okay it's really on a knife edge most of the time (laughs) which is what makes it so exciting and immediate is that we have to balance supply and demand every single moment and that's that's quite different to climate change which is kind of happening over a very long time scale and I like that that um, tension that's a very interesting way to describe um, electricity. I guess don't really think about how sometimes it actually really is on a knife edge, and like especially with like extreme weather, how much you can just completely knock things out. 
and yeah, your life is pretty much just gone. <laughs> but I think that's a good segue. So you've worked in both electricity networks and electricity storage. How do you think kind of both these areas develop and progress, not only within Australia, but overseas, especially with your working history in the UK? And with respect to these areas, how have you kind of already start to see them incorporate weather and climate forecasting in planning? So electricity storage is unfortunately totally dominated by lithium-ion batteries, which are not the only thing in electricity storage, but that's just the sexy thing at the moment. And, you know, we see electricity storage or lithium-ion batteries could be, I could have a battery at home, have a battery in my car. I've got a battery, I've got two batteries on the desk in front of me, one in my phone and one in my laptop, and they're both merrily discharging away. And... Then you've got what's called grid scale batteries, which could be just connected to the grid. And we've got a number of examples that are where they're owned and operated by networks. So here in Victoria, we've got United Energy's pole top batteries in the Bayside suburbs. And then we've got um, Osgrid in Sydney are setting up community batteries as our Western power. Then transmission companies like Electronet own and operate batteries to provide system support. So they're a very flexible tool. And then we also have trees associated with renewable farms, like the big battery in South Australia, the Tesla battery associated with NeoEnds wind farm. So, so they can be deployed in a number of ways. And they're quite exciting, but we're very fixated on one technology. And I don't think one technology is going to solve all the problems that we have to solve as we move to a an electricity system that has a lot of renewable variable generation. We're going to need long duration storage, slow start storage, fast responding storage. And we also should think about energy storage more broadly. So storing heat or storing cool, because these are the things that as customers we use most. So if you think about what you use at home, most of the electricity you use will be to make hot water unless you're using gas. But we, we hope to transition away, I guess, from gas. So you'll be using electricity to make hot water, to warm your home, to cool your home. So that doesn't mean you have to have electricity. It could be hot water. There are solutions that use ice to store cool or there are chemical phase change materials that store heat as well. So there's, But we just very focused on lithium-ion which as someone who's worked in electricity storage is very disappointing because there's lots of other exciting stuff out there, including different battery technologies that we could be looking at. Well, it's great to get your insight into some other exciting methods of electricity storage. I think people are very quite heavily focused on lithium-ion. It's pretty much everywhere. It's the very sexy technology that everyone wants to use, but we forget it's not going to, it's still very reliant on mining. We will need some other alternatives as well. We need to also adapt our thinking into some different, I guess, electricity storage technologies because what we're now used to and what is a huge benefit of fossil fuels is that it pretty much runs as a tap. We pretty much turn it on and off as we need it, whereas electricity storage isn't really going to quite work like that. It needs a bit more sophistication. And But thanks for sharing that. That's, yeah, it's good to have some insider insight into that area. You also mentioned just before how the electricity network is pretty much on a 
kind of like a knife edge and that's quite understandable we're increasing in demand a lot as the years progress whereas we're having we're struggling to actually find sources of supply so how do you see our planning for greater resilience in the distribution of our electricity network to kind of account for increased occurrence of extreme weather conditions and i guess different kind of climates yeah, so I think we, we do have to balance supply and demand. What's going on in our system at the moment is we have too much solar. So that's a minimum demand problem. But really, in a few years' time, we hope that we'll have lots of electricity, uh, sorry, electric vehicles, which will be a big demand, which will, if you like, if you could match them up today, we probably wouldn't be talking about minimum demand. This is, this is the duck curve or the swan curve that I talked about. So what we really need to do is have some, some solutions, some tools that allow us to get through this short period where the expected increase in electricity demand, which if we electrify heat or we electrify transport, we would expect to see. We've just got this, and I don't know how long that gap is. That's what the problem is. It could be I don't know, two years, five years, 10 years that we have this gap that we have to resolve. So that's kind of like a broader system issue, but things like bushfires and storms will cut off electricity by damaging electricity infrastructure. So how do we ensure that we're building for resilience? And there are a number of networks who are exploring what's called standalone power systems. So instead of having thousands of kilometres, well, I think hundreds of kilometres of poles and wires out to one or two remote customers where that length of line has to be maintained you have to clear vegetation away from it and it's just out there exposed to bad weather you get rid of that line and you build what's called a standalone power system which is essentially a microgrid so it will have some solar it will have a battery it may have a diesel generator as well just in case and the idea is that that it's more reliable than poles and wires because you don't have that risk of it being exposed to bad weather so this is something that western power in west australia are doing a lot of and a number of the new south wales networks central and endeavor energy replaced some of the lines damaged in the bushfires by with standalone power systems and also uh, perhaps customers could think about their own resilience. I know from my family that people have installed solar PV panels on their roof, expecting that when there's power outage, they'll be fine. They'll be able to do whatever they like, but that it's a requirement of being connected to the wider network, that when there is no network, your solar panels are disabled unless you have specifically designed to be isolated so you have an isolation switch and that's for safety purposes because mm. if the network's gone and you're still generating with your solar panel electricity is flowing out onto the network and there may be a linesman further down the line mm. who is working on what they think is a de-energized network and that is not very safe but you can design it so that if there was no network your solar panels and there was sunshine you could you could be self-consuming your electricity but that's a big surprise to people because they don't think they haven't they don't understand that. But we haven't really had that conversation with customers because you can imagine that if we did and it was a small incremental cost to, to give you that capability, many people would take it. 
thanks for sharing that. Yeah, I think we wouldn't really think about what would happen once the power goes out and we're just still sending power to the to the facilities and how that would actually impact people. I think that's some great insight, yeah. And it just goes to show that there is still so much to consider and so much to learn about just properly developing a strong energy network that relies on not only private companies generating it, but how that kind of will change when, I guess, homeowners kind of build their own mini electric networks and then start selling power back to, back to the grid. And yeah, that's yep. very interesting to think about. So I guess the other thing to that yeah. point is that a lot of, so we, we've got this whole process at the moment called uh, being led by the Energy Security Board post-2025 market design project, which really envisages customers selling the electricity, their excess electricity that they make to the big wholesale market. But there are a lot of customers who would much rather sell their excess electricity to their local community in a local market what I would call like a farmer's market rather than, you know, the supermarket or the cash and carry, the big, big market. But our regulatory structure is really inflexible in that sense. So it is, Mm. while technically if I make electricity on my roof and you turn your kettle on, you are likely using the electrons that came off my roof to boil your water you'll still be just because it went those electrons went through your meter you will pay your retailer for those electrons rather than your next door neighbor who made those Mm. electrons and our regulatory framework isn't really set up to kind of accommodate that local approach for instance you know we all pay to move our electrons through the electricity network And currently that is assuming that it's coming a long way from the big big generator down to our house and you're paying for all of that. But if you're only moving it down the street, should you only pay for the little bit of network that you use? And then what happens to the other bit of the big network that you're not really using? So there's all these exciting things in what we call democratising energy. That could be an idea for someone to establish like a kind of local community kind of wholesale for electricity. Yeah, I guess a lot of people, especially in rural communities, would probably prefer to be powering their own communities rather than like another city that's so far away. Yes, I think that could be a good idea for someone, potentially a person listening to this podcast. um, Well, and you know, the future is going to need lots of innovative people, probably younger people who have got new ideas about how we should trade, buy and use energy rather than the you know, incumbent established big retailers that we currently have, the Origins, the Energy Australias and the AGLs who have been doing the same old thing for decades you know, where is all that new, exciting thinking going to come from for new approaches, you know, that people people want? As renewable energy kind of changes, there is the opportunity for us to kind of return back to more very localised community kind of thought and growth rather than yeah. all very big city planning kind of things. Also, not so much a reverse back in time, but a little bit of a community reverse back in time where you can kind yeah. of grow as a community together. Originally, electricity was generated much more locally, so it would have been, you know, generated in Melbourne for Melbourne rather than out a long way away from Melbourne. But, yeah, how how are we going to go back to a more local 
localized energy system with local markets and yet local generation may not always be there there'll be that cloudy day when you won't be able to buy electricity from your neighbor so then you will need to be able to import it from the bigger system because that provides mm. diversity and resilience so yeah. how do we you know how do we value the mm. resilience versus the local supply yeah, I guess that's true. If you're relying on solar panels and the weather in your area is not great, pretty much your whole neighborhood would be out. So you'd really have to rely on somewhere far enough, uh, yeah. far away. So I guess while ideally local community kind of power supply would be great, and I think that would really work to establish some community strength and bonding, eventually yeah. it may not be such a great idea in some respects, like just in case everyone is out. Yeah, you need you need both things. So, for instance, Malakuta, which was very badly affected in the bushfires, they're quite keen to keep their connection to the wider system so that when they make electricity with their solar panels, they can sell it back to the market and make some money. But when they know that there's bad weather coming, they can preemptively disconnect from the wider system, having, you know, charged up a big battery and got their community ready so they can kind of ride out the bad situation. And then when that's passed, they can then go back to being connected. So Malakuta have been an Osnet services who look, after, who look after the network in that area have been trying to explore installing a microgrid, an islandable microgrid rather than an isolated microgrid for a large number of years. They just haven't quite got it over the line yet. Okay. That's, yeah, that's interesting. I think probably could keep talking to you about this particular topic for quite some time. But I think even what you're suggesting for local communities, that could be a potential source of community income where if you're, especially if it's quite a rural area and you have a lot of sunlight and you're a lot more likely to generate solar power than someone, say, in Melbourne, you could be selling all that electricity back and generating more funds for your community to help in the development. And I think that's actually really good to hear as a potential for I guess local communities to be more self-sufficient, I guess not to say more self-sufficient, but have a bit more availability for some extra income and funds just to help continue to develop their actual communities. It's just a nice opportunity for a community to be sort of resilient in energy as well as, you know, support their own interests. Hmm. Okay, so we'll keep moving on because I think this area is quite interesting and there is so much to unpack there. Before organising this interview, I did some background reading into your career path and I think personally you had a very interesting career path that a lot of students might actually gain some advice from. So initially you were interested in chemistry, so that led you to work in different chemical industries and that interested you to pursue a PhD in atmospheric science in Australia. But then after this, you went back to England to become a primary school teacher, like you mentioned. Then from there, you transitioned to electricity industry, where you've now continued and are making some great impacts. So what experiences and advice from this career path could you give to students who, like you, may not have directly studied an energy-related course, but feel like they will eventually become uh, interested in energy? Yeah, so I guess I've always followed things that are interesting, So I guess my first professional job was as an analytical chemist in a dairy company doing the food nutrition analysis that you see, you know, the percentage of fat and sugar, that that was my first job. And then I moved into asthmatic drug delivery, which was aerosol science. So not so different really from the aerosol science I did during my PhD 
but much more focused on what we inhale rather than just what's out there. And so if you like, I've always pursued things that were interesting. Obviously, you've got to find someone who wants to pay you to do the things that you find interesting, which is probably more of a challenge. And because I worked in remote areas, so the job I had running Australia's Climate Reference Station at Cape Grim in Tasmania was in a small remote community. I had real difficulty keeping staff because all the young people at high school would just want to leave northwest Tasmania and go somewhere far more exciting and then of course I'd I'd encourage someone to come down and live in northwest Tasmania from I don't know, Melbourne and they'd be horrified at how remote it was and they wouldn't last very long so I got really into if you like uh, careers advice and mm. promoting STEM careers which put me into schools and I realized that I didn't really know much about teaching and also there's a lot of evidence that if children at primary school don't get good science teaching they're turned off and then Mm. they don't want to do science so I thought right I'm going to go and do science teaching in the primary school and that actually didn't work out very well because I returned to the UK uh, following the global crash and so Mm. there weren't many permanent jobs and because I was in my 40s then I wasn't very keen sort of being a train it was very difficult to go back to university at 40 and retrained to be a uh, teacher, but then I couldn't get a permanent job. So that's when I started doing other things in my summer holidays. And then eventually I ended up getting uh, a permanent job in electricity storage. And I guess since then I've kind of either been in electricity storage regulatory affairs, so looking at policy and regulations and electricity networks. Now, of course, beginning of my career I was playing with test tubes and chemicals and all that kind of stuff and doing lots of lab work and now my you know the amount of lab work I do is zero and I'm basically flying a desk but you know I'm still applying my you know my technical scientific analytical skills to to data it's just not kind of chemistry data if that makes sense. Even though you're not quite sure where you're, what you're doing. Just kind of follow a path that interests you and you will end up in a good place in the end, yeah. which is nice and reassuring to hear. So I guess in your position as a teacher, because I'm interested to know, do you actually find, did you find it harder to encourage younger generations to pursue STEM and take on challenges and problems? Like a lot of, so I guess with, with science and I guess research where it's going, global warming isn't going to be a challenge that we fix tomorrow. It's probably going to last a couple of decades. And we do need younger generations to kind of still take up that challenge and take up the hurdle. So is it actually more difficult to encourage younger people to, to think, work in this area? No, I think children, and you know, so I taught mainly six to eight-year-olds, and they're naturally curious. They want to know what's going on. They like to explore things. I think the key thing is typically at a primary school, I had to teach not just science, but maths, English, French, not so good on the French. You know, you're a generalist. You have to teach a lot of things. I had to teach football. So for me, it was really easy to teach science. And I was really comfortable giving children lasers and scalpels and doing all kinds of exciting stuff. But if you put me in a big hall with 20 children and five footballs, I was just terrified. And so I was probably a really bad PE teacher, but a really good science teacher. And I think it is. So that's kind of why it's important to have good science teachers at primary school. 
So I certainly had lots of children very excited about science and it's very easy to encourage children to turn off lights and think about the environment and things like that. So I did think I was going to change the world one primary school class at a time, but obviously I wasn't, I was only teaching for three years, but it's something, so I'm still interested in, you know, going into schools and promoting STEM careers. It's just that I'm just not actively involved in that space. And that's definitely something that we can all do as scientists or technical people to encourage the younger generation who are going to have to come along after us and make a difference. To be inspiring, I guess, for younger students to take on take on the challenge. And I guess I think you've mentioned somewhere before that you were actually inspired by a pretty amazing teacher to pursue chemistry and then and ultimately which led you to where you are now. Some students aren't actually fortunate enough to have that kind of inspiration, especially at a young age or even nowadays. What kind of advice would you give to students who don't really know what they quite want to do yet but want to make some kind of impact? Yeah, so I do think it's very difficult. You know, we do like to say to, I don't know, seven to eight-year-olds or 12 to 13-year-olds or even 19 to 20-year-olds, what is it that you want to be when you grow up? And really, we don't know. If you are, Some people do. Some people are very lucky and know exactly what they want to do when they grow up, but most of us don't. And so then the best thing to do is to pursue things that interest you. I have a I have a brother and sister who are very musical, but my parents weren't very excited about them pursuing a musical career because it didn't pay well, whereas I was more interested in science and that got the big tick because that had lots of potential. But, you know, if you're forced, let's say, to choose something that doesn't interest you, then it's very hard to remain motivated. And so it's better to choose something where you can that you find interesting, fascinating, because, you know, you'll be enthusiastic. That enthusiasm will, you know, generate more enthusiasm from other people. So try to be flexible. You know, there was, I suppose, my parents' generation got one job when they left school and probably stayed in that job till they retired. I won't even my generation will not have that experience and your generation won't have that experience either. So we're going to be flexible Mm. and, you know, embrace change. It's scary, but, you know, it does bring lots of good opportunities. Mm. Okay. Yeah, I think that's great advice. I think being flexible and being able to readily accept and take on that change is good advice based on how things are developing, industries will die out and new ones will be born in to replace them. And we have to kind of be able to adapt and take on those challenges that form. And yeah, I think that's great advice. Thank you, Jill, for sharing that. I think personally, I think I will take on that advice. I think change is something hard to accept, but with how things are going, we can't rely on sitting comfortably in one area for the rest of our lives. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think that's all the time we've got for today. Thank you, Jill, for taking the time to speak with us today. I've learned a lot and I've been quite interested. I'll probably do some more reading about localized community generation now. But yes, thank you for taking the time to sit with us today. Yep. And thank you, Brian, for your, your invitation to speak.